Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Matthew, verses 15 through 22, where the Holy Scriptures read. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin? Father, we just thank you for the truths that we were able to just sing. For not only is it wonderful music, but it is wonderful truths. For Christ is truth. He is the light who comes into the darkness of the world to save men from their darkened souls and darkened hearts. So, Father, we praise you for that. Father, I just pray for your people. I pray that you would strengthen us now. That you would uphold us by your almighty, omnipotent hand. That you would empower us in a dark world to go forth with the light of the gospel to powerfully proclaim Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Help us to live in light of the gospel. Help us never to forget that that is our identity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When it comes to sure and unavoidable things in life, there are two constants, which are death and taxes. Yes, for you cannot avoid either of them. And believe me, people have tried, and boy, have they tried. And yet, they all seem to discover the same truth, which is this. No matter how hard you try and dodge your taxes, you will pay them or suffer the consequences. And yet still, history is full of people who have tried to do just that. For example, this is a household name, uh, but Martha Stewart, the queen of home decor. Now, she spent five months in federal prison, not for avoiding taxes, but for insider trading. Now, you may have heard about that because it was quite popular in the news at one point. But what you may not have heard is that she ended up having the IRS come after her later because she didn't pay taxes on a home that she had purchased in New York. See, she said that she didn't think that she had to pay them because she didn't live at the property full time. That was her excuse she tried to give. And in response, the IRS issued her a full-time late fee for all of the taxes that she had not paid, which brought the total amount that she owed to nearly a quarter of a million dollars. That's no pocket change. Another tried and failed tax dodger is the famous country singer, Willie Nelson, who had the IRS come after him after they discovered that he was utilizing tax shelters to try and hide his money and come after them. After him, they did. On November 9th, 1990, federal agents showed up at Willie's properties, all six of them that were in six different states at the same time where they seized the properties along with all of his assets. 
They were taking things like his master tapes, his touring equipment, gold and platinum records, and they even took his wardrobe. They don't leave nothing behind. And after they were done with that, they sent him a bill saying, you still owe us $16.7 million, so find a way to pony up the money. So what did Willie do? He didn't have the money, so he went on to release a new album, and I'm not making this up. It was titled, The IRS Tapes, Who Will Buy My Memories? And he did this in order to try to get his loyal fans to help raise money to pay off Uncle Sam. One more, when it comes to crimes, Chicago's most famous gangster, Al Capone, was a master at getting away with his illegal activities, which included robbery, murder, bribes, and gambling. However, there was one crime that the master of crime could not get away with, which was the crime of tax evasion, which is what finally did him in in the end. And it ended him a place in the prison called Alcatraz Island. Maybe you have visited this on a trip out to California because it's a touring place now. But he had a spot there all because he refused to pay what he owed the government. You know, when it comes to getting yourself into trouble, the issue of taxes is one of the fastest ways you can do it. No questions about it. Which is something that's not only true for our day today, but it's actually true back in Jesus' day as we read in Matthew 22. Which is why in Matthew 22, the religious leaders approach Jesus on that very subject, hoping to get him into serious trouble. And the way they do it is actually pretty creative. You got to hand it to them. Like, they thought this through. This was, this was a well-set-out trap for Jesus. And they put him in a no-win situation because, as we'll see from his response, they set him up where it's like, you can either go this direction or this direction, and both of them are bad. However... With Jesus' response, not only does he yet again outmaneuver them, but he uses the situation to teach some very important truths, which is this, pay what you owe. Pay what you owe. And through his teaching on this, we're going to see this morning from our passage, the three ways we must do exactly that. We must do these three things in order to pay what we owe. And here they are. We must pay what we owe, first off, to the kings within the world, secondly, to the king of the world, and then third, the king who marveled the world. As we've seen throughout Matthew's gospel, the religious leaders and Jesus, they're not friends. They do not get along even a little bit. In fact, you could say that Jesus was their nemesis. And so over and over throughout Matthew's gospel, we see them trying to trap Jesus. Remember back in Matthew chapter 12, what the first big scuffle was over? It was over Sabbath. And what happened there? Jesus told them that he didn't care about their man-made laws whatsoever. He trampled all over them. He was totally indifferent and nonchalant about their little man-made system that they set up. He didn't care about it at all. In fact, he goes on then to lay into them, calling them hypocrites. And so the religious leaders didn't like this at all. Then a couple chapters later, what do do we find happening with them again? The same thing. You remember the word they used, their man-made law to try to get out of taking care of their parents and the poor? Anybody remember? Corbin. Remember that one? They would just say Corbin, and that was a word that meant everything I have has been dedicated to God, and so I can't help you poor people. I can't help you parents who the Old Testament commanded them to take care of. And the best part about this hypocritical man-made law was that once they said it, they didn't have to give everything to the temple right then and there. They could go on spending it, buying vineyards for themselves, doing whatever they want with it 
for their life because at the end of their life, then it would be dedicated to God. Very convenient, right? And yet Jesus looks at it and says, very unbiblical, because that's a very much a man-made law that you use to ignore God's laws. Then as we saw recently in Matthew 21, Jesus goes in and he cleanses the temple, which had become a shrine to the religious leaders' blatant hypocrisy. And after he does this, boy, did he upset them. And so the religious, the religious leaders, then they come to Jesus and they're like, hey, show us your badge. Where's your authority? Why do you get to do this? On whose authority do you speak? And what does Jesus say to them then? All right, I'll tell you what, I'll answer your question with a question. See, it's a, it's a good move. It's not just politicians who do it. But he says, on whose authority did John the Baptist do what he did? And right there, Jesus puts them between a rock and a hard place because if they say that John the Baptist was not of heaven and he was from man, who, was he gonna, who were they upsetting? The crowds, because the crowds saw John the Baptist as a prophet. But if they went with the answer that said, oh, he was from heaven, well, then they answered their own question when they said, by whose authority do you do these things? Because who did John the Baptist point the people to? Christ. He was the forerunner of Christ. And so basically, as Matthew's been showing us, Jesus and the religious leaders keep engaging throughout Jesus's earthly ministry in theological chess. And it always ends the same way. And it's with Jesus putting them in checkmate in three moves. He just flat out humiliates them over and over. And there's nothing that they can do about it. And so in Matthew 22, we find the last three chess matches between Jesus and the religious leaders. And today we're going to look at the first of the three, and it's over the issue of taxes. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 22, and we're going to jump in here. Verse 15, I'll read it again. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So here we have the Pharisees who were very much anti-Rome. They didn't like the Roman government. They wanted them gone, and they were hoping the Messiah would come and do that for them. And yet, what do they do here? They team up with a group of people called the Herodians. All right, now, first off, the Pharisees, where did they come from? They came from the Babylonian exile. Because what was happening there was the Jewish people were at threat of being assimilated into the Babylonian culture. And so the Pharisees came along, which simply means the separate ones. And they said, no, no, no. We have to preserve our culture and our religious faith. We cannot become Babylonians. And so it started out pretty good, right? Like they were trying to obey God's commands while in exile and follow his laws. But then as we know, we've seen over and over and over, they come up with all these man-made laws that they put in place to help them not break God's laws. And since those were good, then they put in another layer of laws and then another layer of laws. And then before you know it, you got legalism and it's a big old mess, a big old hypocritical mess, actually. So that's the Pharisees. Now, the Herodians, on the other hand, they were basically the opposite of this. These were basically the Roman bootlickers who when Rome came in and took over, they were like, oh, sweet, this is an opportunity where we can cozy up to the Romans and we can, we can profit from this. And that's exactly what they did. And so here we find these two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, who absolutely did not like each other, coming together to take down Jesus because their mindset must have been, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so they 
come after Jesus by laying a clever trap for him. And that trap is in verse 17. And they ask him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's the question. And if Jesus says, no, it's not lawful, then they've got him. And the Herodians can go back to the Romans and say, hey, we have an anarchist here, okay? Another one of these Messiah figures who's trying to rise up and overthrow the Roman government, you gotta come in and take him down. Because he had just happened like 30 years prior. There was a big uprising when this tax that is being asked about was implemented. And that's what they're trying to trap Jesus into, into being an anarchist. On the other hand, if Jesus says, yes, pay your taxes, and that's it, what does he risk? He risks upsetting all the people, right? They would be super offended. And if that was the case, there'd be no more hosannas, no more palm branches. Jesus's messianic career would basically be over. That's the way they thought about this. And so they set him up in a way where he can't avoid the question either, right? Like they avoided Jesus' question back about John the Baptist when he asked it, and they're like, we don't know. And he's like, all right, I'm not telling you nothing either. But if Jesus would have done that here, it wouldn't have worked well for him because that's why they set him up with those flattering questions. Look at their false flattery. They say, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion. Now tell us about the tax. And if you don't, everything we just said isn't true and you're a coward. See, he's, in, he's between a rock and a hard place. He's got to answer this question. And so what does Jesus do? Yet again, he checkmates them in three moves and makes them look completely ridiculous. But first, he lets them know that he's seen through their little scheme. And once again, he calls them a bunch of hypocrites, which is precisely what they are. And Jesus's response here is absolutely breathtakingly brilliant. Look at verse 19. He asked for a coin that was commonly used to pay the tax, which was called a denarius. And then he asked them, he holds it up and says, all right, whose likeness is on this coin? And which they... Uh, probably all in unison with sinister smiles, answer back Caesar's. They knew whose was on it. Because at first glance, if you think about this, if you look at this coin, the fact that Caesar's image is on the coin is a bad thing to have that and then render that back to Caesar. Why? Well, if you know much about this coin in the Jewish mindset, uh, this was basically viewed as pagan idolatry. See, on one side of the coin, it had the image of Tiberius Caesar with a Latin inscription that said, Tiberius Caesar, the son of the divine Augustus. That's a bold claim. And then on the other side, <clears throat> it had a picture of the Roman goddess of peace with the Latin inscription saying, the great high priest. So not only was he the divine son of a Roman emperor, but he also was considered the high priest of the Roman emperor. And so for a Jew, when they saw this, what came to their minds? How about the first and second commandments, which says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the second one is like it, which says not to make any graven images or likeness that you bow down and worship, that you revere. It says not to do that. And you got to remember in Rome, they had something called emperor worship, which is precisely what got the early Christians into trouble, which resulted in them being fed to lions in masses. And it was all because even they refused to obey the emperor. They followed all the other laws. They were wonderful citizens. But when it came to that one thing, they're like, nope, can't do that, Caesar. Feed us to the lions, have at it. And so yet Jesus here takes this coin. He asks who in, whose image is on it, which is an image that is quite clearly breaking the first and second commandments. And then he says something remarkable. 
He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Nope, he keeps going. And he goes on to qualify it saying, and to God, the things that are God's. And this leads us to our second point here. First, we must pay what we owe to the kings within the world, but secondly, the kings of the world. Do you see the genius of Jesus' answer here? See, the denarius coins, they were made out of Caesar's own pocket. He took his own silver and he used that to finance and make these coins that were used for the Roman system. And that's why his picture was on them. However, with Jesus' answer, what does he make abundantly clear? He makes it clear, yes, render the things to Caesar that are Caesar's, but don't render the things to Caesar which are God's. And that was, the, that was their concern, right? Because if they were rendering worship to Caesar as they saw it, well, that's flat out idolatry and Jesus is a false teacher and he's gonna lose sway with the crowds. But what Jesus points out here is we render to God above government. And this is a fine point, a very important point because when humanity gets this wrong, boy, does it result in a bloodbath. Because when you start treating Caesar as God, the government as God, what happens? Tyranny, death, blood, destruction. And history's full of this. And so Jesus brilliantly points out, you know what? Give what is to Caesar's back, but make sure you give to God what is God's. And so he avoids the trap brilliantly with this answer. Let's look at a few verses here on why we need to render to God over government. Daniel 1, 1 through 2 These verses not only show us why we render to God over government, but they also show us why we render to government under God. Does that make sense? We render to God over government, but we also render to government under God. And why? Because God's the one who sovereignly put the government in place. All right, so Daniel 1, 1 through 2 says this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And then it says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. That's that's remarkable. These sacred vessels that were used in their worship, God's like, all right, you're taking this over and you can have this stuff too. My people don't get it. Daniel 2, 20 through 21. Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. And then what? He removes kings and sets up kings. Proverbs 8.15. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. And not only does God sovereignly set up and remove kings, but he also sovereignly bends the hearts of kings in the direction that he sees fit. And I say that because that's precisely what Proverbs 21.1 says. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he will. So why does Jesus tell them to render to Caesar that which is Caesar's? As we see clearly from these verses, it's because Caesar belongs to God, and consequently, he has been sovereignly appointed by God. And so as Jesus says, we must render to him. And what does that word render mean? Okay, it's not a common word that we use anymore, but it simply means to pay what is owed. That's what it means to render, to pay what is owed. And the point is, if we refuse to pay what is owed to Caesar, we're actually refusing to pay what is owed to God. Why do I say that? 
Well, the Bible says precisely that. Romans 12, one through two says this. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority <clears throat> except from God <clears throat> and those which exist are established by God. And look what he says. Paul goes on to say, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. When we refuse to render to Caesar, we are actually refusing to render to God. That's what scripture makes abundantly clear to us. And if you think about this, there's a lot of ways that we can actually refuse to render to Caesar. But we're just gonna look at three of them today. One of the most common ways that we hear about people doing this is, what do they do with their taxes? They cheat on them, right? That's one of the most common ways that people will try to not render to Caesar. And this is often done in our culture, sometimes by finding an employer who will pay you cash so it's all off the books. You don't have to worry about it. Nope, no taxes, there's no records, sweet. And yet, what does Jesus say to this? He says, render to Caesar that which is Caesar. Give him your taxes that are due. Well, pastor, our government, do you understand? They take our money and they fund bad things with that. They fund things like abortion with it. Don't you know that our government is taking far too much money? It's highway robbery what's happening here. Yeah? Do you want to do a comparison between the U.S. government and the Roman government and then decide which government you want to live under? Because the Roman one didn't have no Bill of Rights. It was Caesar's way or the highway. And usually on the highway, they crucified you or hung you or killed you. The point is, Rome was a very violent and barbaric culture. They fed kids to lions. Kids. This was a very barbaric culture. And yet, in spite of such barbarism and corruption and cruelty, what does Jesus command? Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Now, I'm no dummy. I know that this hits close to home for some of us here, but... I'm not here to tickle ears. And this is what the scripture says. I'm here to tell you what the scripture says. And what it says is very loudly and very clearly, pay your taxes. Pay all of your taxes and not a penny more, but pay them all and do so because refusing to render to Caesar is actually refusing to render to God. Another way we refuse to render to Caesar is by not praying for Caesar because scripture commands us to pray for our Caesars, for our leaders. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2 says this. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So here's the question. Are you praying for the Caesars of our land? Not just once a year, but regularly all the time because you're commanded to. We are commanded to. Not only do they need our prayers and boy, do some of them need it. But as we've seen, they are God's appointed leaders whom he's called to lead and we are called to pray for. And as we pray for them, we become a blessing for them. God bends their hearts as he sees fit, right? And so praying for them, do you think that might be one of the ways that he bends their hearts? Absolutely it is. <clears throat> do you realize how hard it is to hate someone that you're praying for on a regular basis? It's very hard. Like try it sometime, not hating them, but praying for them. It's really, really hard. 
But the thing is, when you pray for somebody, you're going to find something remarkable happening. Is your heart then softens for them as well. You begin to see them, even if they're a, a very depraved Caesar, as just that, as a depraved Caesar in need of the gospel. And so pray for them, not just once, like pray for them a lot, daily, monthly, yearly, and see how God uses it not only for their good, but for yours. The third way that we refuse to render unto Caesar is by not honoring Caesar. 1 Peter 2.17 says this, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I almost didn't include this point because it just doesn't really relate to us much as Americans, because if there's anything about American politics that is absolutely wonderful, it's that every four years, half the country goes on to honor the guy they didn't vote for in a just perfect, remarkable way. So I know none of us struggle with this, uh, with this honoring unhonorable people, but it's in the Bible. So maybe there's one person here who has struggled with this on occasion. Is the sarcasm thick enough? Does Peter tell us to render honor to the emperor with a condition attached? Does he say, honor Caesar if? Is that what he says? No. He says, honor him, period, full stop. And the reason we honor the emperor has nothing at all to do with how honorable or dishonorable the emperor is. The basis is what then? How honorable is God? That's the reason we give honor to unhonorable people. It's because we are honoring God who is worthy of all honor. Right before this verse, here's what Peter says. Here's the motivation. Be subject, why? For the Lord's sake. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise to those who do good. Some of us really need to wrap our heads around this truth because we struggle with it, right? We, we absolutely do. The question here when it comes to honor though is, do I honor people because they're honorable or do I honor them because God is honorable? And it has to be the latter. We must honor others because God is honorable. Why do we honor our spouses? Is it because they're perfectly honorable? No, absolutely not. Not even close. We are all sinners. And so we honor our spouses for the Lord's sake because he is perfectly honorable. Why do we honor our church leaders? Is it because they are perfectly honorable? No. In fact, I know a guy. It's absolutely not the case. Okay, but we do so for the Lord's sake because the Lord is perfectly honorable. And so as 1 Peter 2.17 tells us, honor everyone. And that everyone in the Greek means everyone. It don't matter how unhonorable they are. Show honor to them and do so for the Lord's sake. Think about this with me for a second. Application time. Can you imagine what this church would look like if we grasped this truth even just a little bit? Do you have any idea how radical and totally bizarre a church like that would look to a world that only honors people based upon the degree that they find them honorable? It'd be remarkable. It would be earth shattering. I'd venture to say our gospel light would go from a flicker to a flame, don't you think? I think it would. Because if you think about it, giving honor to unhonorable people, that's not something we can do in our flesh, is it? No. I might be able to do it with my actions, but in my heart, I might be committing mutiny against them. And without the spirit of God in us, that's exactly what we'll do. 
if we are honorable to unhonorable people, it's going to get noticed. And people are going to come to us and they're going to say, why do you do that? Why do you give honor to unhonorable people? And then when they do that, you know what we're going to be able to do? We're going to be able to say, well, I'm glad you asked that question. I'll tell you exactly why I give honor to unhonorable people. And it's because, it's because that's precisely what Christ did for me, the honorless chap that I am, right? You and I are not worthy of honor. And yet Christ was willing to die for us, an honorless death, a horrible death. And he did so becoming the marvel of mankind who came to suffer and die in our stead in the most honorless of ways. And it's because of this, we can tell them, that I stand and marvel at him and long to show him as much honor as I possibly can because of how much he was willing to suffer an honorless death to make honorless people honorable. That's a lot of honors. Did you track with that? Okay, that's the reason. We must pay what we owe to the kings within the world the kings of the world, and then finally, to the king who marveled the world. After Jesus answers their question, in verse 22, look what he says. When they heard Jesus' response, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Why did they marvel? Like These were people who hated Jesus, big time. And yet his response is so brilliant, they leave marveling. And why? It's because they came in that moment, even just for a second, in in spite of their false flattery, to see that what they spoke in their false flattery was actually true. See, everything they said back in verse 16 about Jesus, they didn't mean it, but it was absolutely true. And his answer shows just how true it was. For Jesus is a teacher who is true, as they said. Jesus is a teacher who does teach the way of God truthfully. He does not care about anyone's opinion, and he is absolutely not swayed by our appearance, no matter how great or lowly that might be. And what a reason to praise God. What a reason to marvel before God and worship him. Just look at the kinds of opinions and appearances that Christ brought together, even within his 12 disciple group. You've got Matthew, who was what? What was his occupation? Tax collector for Rome. Okay, that's, that's one side of the extreme. You could say he was in the Herodian camp for sure, right? And then the other side, who do you have? Simon the what? Zealot. And if you know anything about the zealots, these people were basically domestic terrorists. Their whole mission was to overthrow Rome any way possible, violently even. And yet, Christ brings these two radically different people groups together with their radically different opinions who then stand before him and marvel. They set all that aside to follow Christ, the one who is worth marveling after. And why? Because as they came to finally realize, not only is Jesus true, not only does Jesus teach the true way to God, but Jesus is the true and only way to God, for he is the son of God who set his marvelous glory aside to come to earth in order to save us. Maybe you're here and you're wondering, why should I render to God? Why why do I owe him? What are you talking about? It's a good question. And I can think of two powerful reasons why you should render to God what you owe. First, when Jesus asks, whose image is on this coin? 
they rightly respond saying Caesar's. And if you think about this, this is brilliant because Jesus is probably implied, but he could have rightly responded and said, okay, whose image is upon you? God's. So render to God the things which are God's, which includes you, you image bearer of God. All of us are made in God's image. From the most honorable to the least honorable of us, we are all made in the image of God and the very breath that is in our lungs, the breath of life that we have is on loan from God who breathed it into us. And not only that, as if that wasn't enough, look at the image he took upon himself in order to give us the breath of not life, but eternal life. I want to read from Isaiah 53. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root on dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. All of us were unrendering rebels. All of us. We refuse to render the marvel and glory towards God that he deserves. And so do you see what the prophet Isaiah is saying? He's saying that on the cross, Christ took upon himself the image of sinful man and then rendered the payment for sin in full as his marvelous image became torn and terribly marred. And he did so in order to render his marvelous righteousness to us. And so because he did, we can sing as we're going to in a moment, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And because Christ did this, because he rendered the payment for unrighteousness with his perfectly righteous life upon the cross, we too can stand before him and marvel and render to him our worship and praise. Not as a tax that we reluctantly pay, but as a marvelous joy and delight that comes from our inner being as an expression of the joy we have in Christ. And when we have that, we can sing as one hymn puts it, how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Romans 14, 11 says, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. Philippians talks about this as well. Every knee will bow and render to Jesus the honor and the marvelous glory that he is due. And so we have a choice here. You can marvel now by choice or you can marvel later by force. Because if you choose to not pay, not render what is due to Christ, you will one day be forced to do so when we stand before him the great white throne judgment and are rejected and condemned for not paying what is due. And so that's the choice we have. Marvel now or marvel later. 
by choice or by force. I trust that you have come by God's grace through faith in him to marvel at the one who became a marvel for all the world in order to make honorless people honorable. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for Christ's work on the cross. And Father, we pray for the one here today who is not rendering to you what is due, which is simply trusting in Christ by faith. That's all there is. There's nothing that we can pay or owe. And yet out of that, out of seeing what Christ paid for us, we can be changed forever and stand before you and marvel at your mercy, at your grace, and your love for us. Lord, I pray for this church. Help us to show honor to one another. Help us to not be divisive. Help us to, pre- to preserve the unity of peace that we have here. Father, I ask that I would not disturb that. Empower me to shepherd this congregation gently and wisely and to not cause disunity here. And so, Father, I pray that that would be true for all of us, that we would be peacemakers. Help us now to do these things. Help us to be the church, to bring the gospel forth to all who hear it, to love one another, to honor one another. For your name's sake, for you are worthy of all honor and praise. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.